Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you seeking meaning beyond work and consumption? Does it sometimes seem that instead of God, money rules the world and runs your life? Welcome to Faith and Money, Making the Connection with Mike Little. We are exploring the many aspects of our relationship with money within the grounding of our faith, our money beliefs, our sense of security, truly loving our families and making a difference in the world. Now, here is your host, Mike Little. Hello. Welcome to Faith and Money, Making the Connection. I'm your host, Mike Little, Director of Faith and Money Network. Thank you for tuning in. Here at Faith and Money Network, we have deep roots in the Judeo-Christian faith, and we often draw our wisdom and guidance from the Bible. How can I cultivate more patience with my coworkers? Let me check my Bible. How do we pray? Let's look at examples in the Bible. How can I deal with my grief? I can find comfort in the Bible. But how often do we do that when, we're, when our issue is money? For many of us, the answer would be never. As theologian John Hoy puts it, we read the gospel as if we had no money, and we spend our money as if we know nothing of the gospel. Does the Bible even have anything to say about money? We mainly hear about it in our churches only when we're raising money for next year's budget or a new capital campaign. So it would be understandable to assume that the Bible has little or nothing to say on the issue. In fact, money is the second most frequently mentioned subject in the Bible. Seriously, the second most frequently mentioned subject, second only to idolatry in the Old Testament and to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Our guest today, Ched Myers, has deeply studied the Bible's money lessons and stories, parables and prophecies about living together in God's economy of enough for all. Ched animates scripture for audiences throughout North America and abroad writing extensively and giving monthly webinars and hosting periodic institutes that are Bible and social justice intensives. And he has taken those biblical standards to heart, doing direct action with a variety of social justice organizations, building community wherever he goes, and cherishing the ecosystem in his Southern California home. Ched Myers, welcome. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here. Thank you for this. And I, I want to begin our conversation with the uh, with the manna story in Exodus 16, uh, familiar to many of us, um, but mostly, at least speaking for myself, growing up, uh, familiar as a miracle or a trust story. Uh, and you are the first person that I'd have ever heard uh, share this story in terms of an economic lesson. Would you tell that story uh, and how you see it as an economics lesson? I'd be delighted to, Mike. That's uh, really a beginning place for our work. And let me preface this by saying that 10 years ago, the uh, economic philosopher and journalist William Greider wrote that um, 
we are in a crisis in our capitalist society as it presently functions. He wrote, capitalism is encouraging human pathologies, embodying irresponsibility as a central requirement in its operating routines. What we need, he wrote, is a new narrative. Hmm. I think we uh, lose sight of the fact that many of our practices and beliefs around money have to do with a narrative, a story that we live by. And so many of us, uh, as we try to look at the, the problems and prospects around us, are in that search for a, a deeper, wiser narrative to help us deal with economics. And we find that, I believe, in one of the oldest uh, stories in scripture that we find in Exodus chapter 15. Most of us, if we know it at all, know it through the lens of Sunday school uh, felt boards, the, the story of the manna <laughs> in the wilderness, the right. God feeding the people. But in fact, um, it's, the, it's the very first lesson that biblical Israel is taught after God has liberated the Hebrews from the social and economic condition of slavery in Pharaoh's Egypt. The story begins in Exodus 16 with the people grumbling uh, after they go out into the wilderness in freedom that they don't have enough to eat. And they are complaining and God answers them through Moses saying, uh, I will I will rain food from heaven, uh, meaning God will take care of provision of the conditions, material conditions of sustenance, in order to test Israel's um, faith, Israel's attention to the new instructions, to see if they will follow instructions and these instructions are essentially three as articulated in Exodus 16. The first instruction is um, make sure when you go out and gather this manna that no one gathers too much and everyone gathers enough. The second instruction is make sure that that gift from God keeps circulating. Don't try to store it up or accumulate it. Uh, because then it will begin to rot on you. And that's the famous story of the manna turning to worms the right. next day. And then the third instruction is, for the first time in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and a command to keep Sabbath as a community discipline of limits, of self-limitation and of celebration of the gift of the Creator. So these... Um, this Sunday school story turns out to be an old story, perhaps whose time has come again as we come up against the limits of our dysfunctional economic story. Right. And I, I know I've uh, shared this story with others as well, and they always want to uh, respond with, you know, are we supposed to follow these instructions today? Isn't that just a an old story? Uh, how do you answer that? <laughs> well, of course, Mike, you and I both know that that's a, that's a perennial question among believers, both Jewish and Christian, as to how seriously do we take our sacred stories? How uh, attentively uh, do we engage scripture? Uh, and that would be as true 
of Jesus' command to love our enemies. Christians often wonder if he really means us to take that Mm -hmm. seriously as it would be of this old story in Exodus 16. Uh, I think uh, many of us, uh, and you and I would agree on this, believe that uh, these stories are enduring in their wisdom uh, and have a power to them that we can only access when we begin to take them seriously as opposed to continually trying to build a firewall between us and uh, the wisdom they convey. Uh, So just as uh, the sea didn't part for Moses until he put his foot in it, uh, similarly until we begin to uh, experiment in our lives with taking this old wisdom seriously, it's very difficult for us to Uh, see the way that it can function in our lives. So I guess the short answer is, yes, I I do believe these stories are waiting for us to take them seriously. Yeah. Uh, Amen. One other question I often get, and there's even book titles and people have written about it. I'm curious how you respond to this, the first one of, of what is enough and how do we know how much is enough and what does that look like today? Well, you know, I think there's a certain common sense uh, response to that question. Uh, Oftentimes, I think the question is asked with um, a sort of unconscious subtext, uh, there's never enough. So how can you uh, tell us to be looking for enough? I want to suggest that the notion that we will never have enough is part of the dysfunctional story of modern technological Uh, capitalist society that we have uh, internalized. This sense of anxiety that we we can never have too much, we can never have enough. Uh, The old story says actually that there is such a thing as enough. Uh, And and so that invites us to begin to explore, well, what is enough? And if we are genuinely asking that question, then one of the best ways for us to investigate that is to be in relationship with people who have less than we do. Uh, You know, one of the characteristics of our society is we tend to aspire upwards, so we're constantly uh, comparing our economic condition to those who have more, and so we're always aspiring to have more. Um, And we tend to scapegoat people who have less as being somehow less worthy or less hardworking. And I think actually scripture invites us to get our perspective by um, having real relationships with people who are in fact more marginalized, less socially mobile, uh, less fiscally well off than we are unemployed. Because it is from those folk um, that we can probably best get our bearings about what constitutes enough. Now I think... uh, The real answer to that question, Mike, what is enough, uh, from a biblical perspective, is that question can only be answered collectively. Mm. And we tend to ask that question individually. What is enough for me? And Scripture invites us to ask that question as a social question. What is enough for all of us so that everyone has enough? And then we can uh, apply our common sense to what is enough for everyone. Um, Adequate housing and shelter, adequate food and clothing, adequate social uh, space and mobility, um, good work, uh, some of those kinds of things. Until everyone has enough, 
than any individual um, who enjoys uh, affluence in the face of somebody else's poverty, that person has too much. And I think that's exactly what Exodus 16 tries to uh, communicate to us. Yeah, I agree. agree. I think it's so hard for many of us to imagine alternatives um, to this current system as it is. And um, I think it would be helpful to hear uh, about people who are imagining uh, living in some vi- viable alternatives. And I want to ask you uh, about that and get maybe some specific examples. Um, but we need to take a break right now. So um, stay with us, and we will be right back with Faith and Money, Making the Connection, and our guest, Chad Myers. Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world. And that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Want the inside scoop about what's going on in the social networks of art and entertainment? Tune in to Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com. We'll talk to the top professionals in the entertainment industry and find out what they're working on and what's next. Your host is James Barber, who has his finger on the pulse of the arts and entertainment world. Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com, live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listening to Faith and Money, Making the Connection with Mike Little. To find out more about us, please visit our website at faithandmoneynetwork.org. That's faithandmoneynetwork.org. Now back to Mike Little and this week's show. Yes, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We're talking today with Ched Myers. Ched's a New Testament activist, theologian, a popular educator. And a good friend. And we're talking today uh, about um, faith and money and economics in our scriptures. And then when we left the break, we were talking about the Exodus 16 story, the manna story, as an economic lesson. Um, And the three instructions, gather just enough for your needs, don't hoard the manna, and keep the Sabbath. And um, how alternative that is to uh, for us today to um, accept that and to uh, live that. And um, Chad, I wonder if you could share some uh, in your circles uh, people who have been imagining and living these 
uh, into this a story? Where do you see it happening? And could you give us maybe some specific examples? Sure. You know, uh, Mike, one of the delightful characteristics of the story of Exodus 16 is the word manna itself. It's a, almost an untranslatable Hebrew word, which appears to mean something like, what the heck is this? <laughs> uh, so the people are gathering this gift of sustenance, but they are calling it, what is this? Now, I think encoded in that symbol is the suggestion that oftentimes we don't see what's right in front of us. We don't understand what has always been there. Part of a dysfunctional story is not only what it tells us, but what it doesn't tell us or what it tends to suppress. Well, one of the things that our dysfunctional story suppresses is the fact that every day in our um, normal lives, we practice uh, mutual aid. We practice a gift economy. We practice cooperation. We practice setting limits. Parents and children, households, neighborhoods, workplaces. Hazel Henderson, a uh, ecological economist, uh, very famous, uh, famously said uh, 20 years ago uh, that at least if, if we counted all the person hours and the, the market value of all the cooperative volunteer labor and services that happen in our economy, um, it would surpass the total GDP of our current mm -hmm. economy. But volunteer labor, when you go help your uh, neighbor fix her porch, when somebody stops and asks for directions, uh, when you sit down with a neighborhood child and um, bind up uh, the, the scrape from falling <laughs> off their bike, that happens uh, hundreds of times every day in our normal life. But none of that has market value because it's not um, a, a currency or market exchange. So when we're looking for practical examples, the best place we believe to start is literally in our own households. What are ways in which we were taught growing up and which today in our own households we practice sharing? What are ways in which every day we decide to limit our own intake, uh, our own consumption, uh, our own uh, leisure in order to um, do something for the good of the household uh, or for the good of the neighborhood or for the good of the volunteer organization or church that we're part of? Um, hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours and um, decisions to uh, include others and not act selfishly happen every single day. So while there are lots of uh, organizations and individuals and uh, even some institutions who are practicing this kind of mana economy, in fact, we all practice it to a certain limited degree every single day. Uh, and that's, I think, a really important place to start. Uh, every time we gift somebody with uh, a thing or with money, every time we tithe, every time we um, hold a potluck meal or invite people over uh, as guests, um, all uh, 
or most of our traditional child care, most of our traditional elder care, uh, most of the food that we cook and eat, all of that is done around tables that are essentially functioning according to this older way of being, this gift economy or what Hazel Henderson called the love economy. So part of the answer to that question is just um, recalibrating our vision and having eyes to see what we already do and then expanding the sphere of that love economy, practicing it better. Mm. Yeah, I can uh, I can hear in the in the man who what is it kind of the the maybe the ways we try to make things harder than they are, mm. uh, even the scriptures. And uh, we don't often get help. Uh, sometimes we do from the pulpits. Um, but it, it's easy to, I think, talk ourselves out of it, especially if we're uh, just hearing a, a story like the, the manna story for the first time through that lens that you're teaching it. So that's a, a great reminder. Thank you. Yeah, I think one of the tragedies and yet also one of the great possibilities is the fact that our churches and our synagogues have these stories as scripture. These are uh, voluntarist communities already who largely depend on the volunteer labor of their members to survive and exist. It's one of the last places left in society where folks of different ages and backgrounds come together and have potluck meals. Uh, our churches and synagogues are perfect places for us to teach and learn and practice Sabbath economics. But as you say, these stories have largely been marginalized because uh, the dominant economic story still tends to be the functional story for our faith communities. Mm. Let's go back to the second instruction. Uh, the people were given this um, this instruction to not hoard. And um, I'm curious how you respond to, you know, does that mean we shouldn't save for emergencies or retirement? Uh, How do you respond to that? Yeah, you know, retirement in particular, Mike, uh, generates a great deal of anxiety in our society. Uh, Most of the marketing of insurance companies and uh, nursing homes <laughs> and um, health care services all prey upon our very visceral uh, anxiety about what's going to happen when we become infirm or grow old. Uh, of course, again, if, if we ask that strictly as an individual, um, isolated Um, economic subject, of course we are going to want to store up money so that we can pay somebody to take care of us. That's essentially what retirement uh, is about or or to have greater leisure um, than we did during our, our working years. What does it mean to ask those questions communally? Uh, What does it mean to ask the question, what is enough for everyone to have access to basic health care, for everyone to be able to deal with emergencies, for everyone to have a quality of life in uh, their post-working years, for everyone to have adequate health care in old age. Uh, Once we start asking that question, then we want to move just from this anxious, self-focused, 
building up our nest egg, which of course not only the healthcare and, or insurance industry preys upon, but also the investment industry, um, targeting people who do have surplus, telling us a uh, hundred ways we can increase that surplus so that we will be secure. But what if security actually lies in having healthy social networks, healthy mm-hmm. family networks, healthy uh, neighborhood community net- networks, healthy social networks. Uh, I, I think the dominant story continues to try to get us to solve these problems through individual action and praise on our um, uh, deep anxieties uh, about the possibility of isolation. And we don't realize that the very architecture of that way of framing it guarantees that we will feel isolated. Jesus, of course, tells uh, the perfect story about that in Luke chapter 12 when he talks about the, the farmer who needs to build bigger and bigger barns to, um, to store his surplus. Uh, and Jesus tries to gently but firmly point out that actually, folks, we can't take it with us. Uh, and so how do we turn private wealth or redefine private wealth as a sort of commonwealth so that all of us can have a measure of security. Now, my mentor, Ladon Sheets, was a wealthy IBM businessman who gave up his considerable wealth in order to um, go down to Koinonia Farms in Georgia and work with the great Clarence Jordan um, among poor sharecroppers in rural Georgia. Uh, he spent the rest of his adult life, did Ladon, um, with no more possessions than he could fit in a backpack. When, mm. he con- when he contracted pancreatic cancer at age 68, he had not one dollar in the bank, no insurance, no pension, no health care program. What he had, however, because of the way he had invested his life, was a huge community of people who loved him because he had invested in them. And that community came together around one of the most magnificent community hospice experiments that we have ever been involved in. And over a hundred people came to tend to this man as he was in uh, his dying process. And and that for me was remains the most amazing example uh, of when you trust in the community of relations, then that is that is actually uh, an embodied alternative security system. And so how are we investing in building relationships that will be there for us in our hour of need? Right. And and again, it's um, finding ways to tell these stories that are happening around us that we, you know, we don't see on the on the television uh, that that remind us that we can look out for each other and it can work and amazing story. I want to, uh, talk about Sabbath, the, the third instruction and what it, uh, looks like today to observe Sabbath. I, again, I, I grew up when, you know, we did our best, but Sabbath meant just, you know, taking it easy on Sunday and didn't uh, put Sabbath with uh, economics much at all. So um, I want to, when we get back, we're going to need to take another break. 
And when we get back, I want to hear your thoughts about Sabbath. So stay with us, folks. This is Mike Little and Faith and Money Making the Connection. We'll be right back. your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here, Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Ready for a unique two-show-in-one package? Check out Life's Journey with Tim Manson, the 7-Minute Motivator. On the one part, we're all about changing minds, one heart at a time. Tim will show you how to overcome struggles in your life and come out winning as Tim is overcoming his struggle with MS. On the flip side, Tim will show you how the power and spirit of the horse and equine-assisted learning programs can inspire and empower you to take that winning edge to a new level. It really is two shows in one. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com listening to Faith and Money, Making the Connection with Mike Little. To find out more about us, please visit our website at faithandmoneynetwork.org. That's faithandmoneynetwork.org. Now back to Mike Little and this week's show. Hey, we're back and we're talking with Chad Myers of Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. And uh, as we left the break, we were um, talking about the third instruction of the of the manna story about Sabbath and would like uh, you, Chad, to speak to what what that looks like today to observe the Sabbath. Is it still important? Where do you see it happening today? Um, yeah, this is the, the crux of the matter, and it's why 15 years ago when we were developing some of our material, we decided to use the phrase Sabbath economics, which is a kind of a strange pairing uh, of terms because we don't normally um, think that one word has much to do with the other. Uh, Sabbath is um, ancient wisdom forged among people who uh, were being rescued from a social system that clearly was not working for them. The Hebrews were at the bottom of the social pyramid of Egypt. They were an oppressed people. When uh, their God leads them to freedom, uh, it commences a catechism of how to be different, how to build a different way of life in which no one will be permanent slaves, no one will be um, structured into poverty or marginalization. And central to that catechism is the notion of Sabbath. You know, there are lots of culture wars about whether the Ten Commandments should be posted on public buildings. But Mm. the real crisis in our culture is that our churches and synagogues 
are illiterate in what the Ten Commandments actually say. So, for example, we normally think of uh, the command to keep Sabbath as the fourth commandment, but actually it's the first commandment, the, the imperative to set aside a day without work, um, without production, is, um, comes four chapters before Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai in Exodus mm-hmm. chapter 20. So really it's the first commandment. It is also the last commandment as Moses is leaving the mountain with the tablets. Yahweh reminds him, uh, by the way, Moses, keep Sabbath. If you do not keep the Sabbath, you will die. Well, what is Sabbath? Sabbath is a, a communal ethos of self-limitation, of putting limits on our production, on our consumption, on our work, uh, <clears throat> on the ways that we try to manage the world so that we can remember that ultimately all material sustenance is a gift. Now, 10 years ago, uh, the Living Planet Report uh, produced a report which said that the global population's actual usage of our Earth's bioproductive capacity is now in more than a 20% overshoot of what is available on the planet. In other words, we are rapidly, as a global human society, liquidating natural resources. And obviously, this kind of consuming 20% more than what the planet is able to regenerate uh, that's an ecological end game. So the question of limits now has become not only a personal or even communal imperative. It is now a historic imperative as we enter into what many people now call the age of ecological crisis. So Sabbath, again, is an old idea whose time has come again. Uh, now, once again, when we look at Sabbath practices, uh, you mentioned, you know, most of us think of Sabbath, if we think of it at all, as uh, taking it easy after church or after uh, temple. Right. But in fact, um, it was only one or two generations ago that most of our local communities lifted the old blue laws. Used to be that on that day, there was no commerce downtown. You couldn't go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it was sort of a, a social uh, covenant to limit our work in order to both renew and recharge, but also to remember what is truly important. That's old wisdom that has only atrophied very recently. Now, of course, with... Um, online culture. You can work 24-7. You can consume and buy and sell 24-7. And it's no mystery why our the quality of our relationships, the, the uh, coherence of our family units, um, the relationality of our neighborhoods and our volu- voluntary organizations uh, is suffering as a result. So Sabbath is key, but uh, if we only see Sabbath as a sort of a private spiritual discipline, then we will miss the fact that it is really a social ethos. Hmm. So limits. How, how do we – many people today are experimenting with a, a very simple discipline of turning their computers off for 24 hours hmm. or 
not driving for 24 hours. This, I would um, submit, is the modern equivalent of uh, one of the ancient statutes of the uh, Israelite Sabbath, which was don't light a fire on the Sabbath. Now, lighting a fire to ancient people is as fundamental as driving or um, being on our computers is to modern people. And so what is the wisdom of saying no for 24 hours? And I would really encourage listeners to try that. And, and you will realize how hard it is. So part of what Sabbath does is it mirrors back to us the extent to which we have become addictive and compulsive uh, in our activity and the extent to which we have become possessed by our possessions. All of that is, can only be revealed through Sabbath practices. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I love your um, wonderful uh, booklet, The Biblical Vision of Sabbath Economics. And in there you wrote, um, we live in a world of great economic inequality. We have not solved the problem of poverty, nor have we solved the problem of affluence. Now, we are, uh, of course, accustomed to what we see as uh, the problems of poverty. But uh, what is the problem of affluence? And what is, uh, I think that's, people don't hear that as being a problem from the pulpits. Interestingly, uh, this uh, little booklet that you're referencing now is um, almost 15 years old. We've been wow. uh, using it uh, all, all around the world. And actually, that booklet came out of uh, – it was an assignment given to me to uh, draft some biblical and theological talking points from the Jubilee 2000 movement, which was one of the most amazing faith-based social movements of the 1990s that took on – the question of global debt and the way in which entire countries were being held hostage uh, to a structured indebtedness to the World Bank, uh, which was keeping them uh, underdeveloped. So really, this uh, uh, the th many of the themes we're talking about were animated through working with some of the most um, highly marginalized and impoverished people in the world. And yet, the, the movement of Jubilee 2000 was far more robust in the global south than it was in the global north, hmm. which begins to suggest to us that while uh, poor folk who haven't uh, reached the level of technological and material development that many in the northern hemisphere have, uh, while those folk may not be materially wealthy, their social imaginations and their commitments to um, demand justice and to share uh, resources is far more developed than ours. So that suggests that uh, we actually have two problems, not just the problem of poverty, but also the problem of what um, uh, the public broadcasting service uh, labeled about uh, seven or eight years ago, the disease of affluenza, the condition right. of having too much. Remember the manna story says, make sure you don't, uh, make sure you gather enough if you only gather a little. So sustenance is important. Fundamental justice is important. But also make sure that you don't gather too much. That ancient wisdom understands that there are pathologies of too muchness, uh, just like there are of too littleness. What are our 
what are our pathologies in the overdeveloped uh, north? Uh, we have an epidemic of addiction, both personal and household substance addiction, sexual addiction, work addiction, um, and the public addictions of, of money and power and entitlement. Um, we have unraveling social networks uh, because folks tend to give more priority to their relationships, to money, and to stuff uh, than they do to their own kin or their own neighborhood or their own church community. How does that work? Well, typically that works um, with this formula. Got to have money to buy stuff. Uh, in order to have money, I got to have a job. Uh, in order to have a job, I've got to uh, work too hard uh, maybe move around and break my social connections to follow the job, to follow the money. So basically, we're working too hard uh, in ways that are alienating to community in order to get money to buy stuff, most of which we don't need. Um, and so there's a whole cultural apparatus that needs to persuade us that we do need this stuff, so we'll continue to work too hard. So we've got epidemic levels of Anxiety, do I have enough? Do I have enough? Mm -hmm. Alienation, uh, not really knowing who our people are, what our place is, what our true vocation is. My life is more than my work, and my work is more than my job. Uh, and epidemic levels of addictive compulsive behavior. All of those are presenting symptoms of what we might call the civilization of affluenza as a collective pathology. And we all suffer from it. We all are too busy. We all are too distracted. We all have problems focusing. Uh, here in our cooperative, we work with a lot of young adults between the ages of 20 and 30. And we see uh, real patterns of attention deficit disorder inability to focus because of the constant distraction through media, through technology, but also through just too much organized uh, activity among the affluent. And, and so I, I do think a lot of attention has, has begun to be paid to the problems of affluenza. An African colleague during the Jubilee 2000 movement of the 1990s which was trying to relieve or restructure the debt of the most highly indebted nations. Um, African colleague put it this way, the problem on the planet is not poverty. The problem is wealth. And that is not the way we usually see things here in the overdeveloped north. Uh, and so a lot of our Sabbath economics attention uh, really tries to focus on how we can name and begin to address these uh, these pathologies of affluenza. Well, that's that's great work. Hey, uh, Chad and folks, we need to take another quick break. We'll be right back uh, with Faith and Money making the connection. us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. It's time to empower our kids so they can make the best decisions now and later in life. 
Listen for I Am For Kids Radio with host Mark Papadis. Mark is the founder of the I Am For Kids Foundation, which is a recognized 501c3 charity committed to revolutionizing elementary education in the U.S. Our show helps kids, teachers, and parents to realize the power of identity and help each of us decide who we are and our place in the world. I Am For Kids Radio is heard live Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in every week for the Wellness Lounge, a step further with host Desiree Watson. Our program empowers you to incorporate a wellness lifestyle into your life, supported by a diverse selection of guests, including physicians, athletes, and education and government professionals, while helping you realize the connection between mind, body, and spirit. You'll achieve a personal edge in injury avoidance, stress management, and personal development. The Wellness Lounge, a step further, airs Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listening to Faith and Money, Making the Connection with Mike Little. To find out more about us, please visit our website at faithandmoneynetwork.org. That's faithandmoneynetwork.org. Now back to Mike Little and this week's show. Yeah, this is Mike Little with Faith and Money and Making the Connection, and we're talking today with Chad Myers. Chad and his wife Elaine lead an organization, Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries in Ojai, California, where they do trainings and seminars, webinars, podcasts that help individuals and church folks uh, really learn to practice their faith. And I recommend you going to their (coughs) website uh, as well to check out their material. Uh, Thanks again, Chad. I I would like to uh, ask you, if you don't mind getting a little personal, when did you begin to see the connections between money and faith in the Bible, and and when did you see it in your own life? How did that kind of conversion come about? Mm. Thanks, Mike. Uh, You know, I had the great uh, gift of um, coming to the Christian faith as a young adult at age 18, and very shortly thereafter being uh, mentored and in many ways midwifed by some of the most amazing conscience-driven uh, Christian folk around this country, ranging from the Catholic Worker Movement to uh, Mennonites, um, uh, people deeply involved in, in social justice. And so I, uh, at age 21, I moved into an intentional Christian community in a poor neighborhood in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so the first 10 years of my adult life were spent in a community that really attempted rigorous practices of sharing and accountability and simple lifestyle. Uh, I mention that um, not because most of your listeners are probably going to take those measures, but because I found it extremely valuable uh, as a a social formation and a spiritual formation in, in the foundation of some of these things. What we often said in our community is you don't know how possessed you are by your possessions until you actually have to share them uh, or limit or limit them. 
And, uh, and it's only then. We can talk about it. We can think about it. We can speculate. Uh, we can be rhetorical. But it's only actually when we have to set limits um, that we begin to find out where we really are. Now, today in our, in our cooperative, uh, <clears throat> we, we really try to invite people into practical disciplines that will both help us understand where we really are on this journey and empower us to take the next step. Um, so the, the companion volume to the Biblical Vision of Sabbath Economics booklet that we've been talking about, we published uh, about seven years ago, and it's called Sabbath Economics Household Practices. And we uh, developed what is called a sevenfold covenant, which invites um, people to look at um, where we are as households, right? Because it's our household economy um, that is the the point of the most felt intersection between us and the big economy out there. So in how do we deal with surplus capital, whether it's an extra 10 bucks in our wallet or um, a, a significant investment portfolio? Um, how do we deal with debt? That's a, a reality for many people in this country, uh, and it's, uh, it tends to really constrain our imagination. So how do we deal with debt? How do we de- deal with giving our charitable contributions? Are they random? Are they to absolve our conscience? Or are they really partnering with organizations we believe in? So three of the first aspects of the Sevenfold Covenant are about money because money is powerful, that, as you know, in yes. the Faith and Money Network. And then the other four are what we call lifestyle um, assessments. So we talk about our, um, our ecological footprint and our consumption. We talk about uh, the extent to which we are uh, in relationship with with uh, disadvantaged people, with poor people, with marginalized people. Uh, we talk about uh, how, we, how we buy and sell and consume, and we talk about how we work and stop working. So that sevenfold covenant is sort of the tool, that practical tool that we use as a, as a personal household assessment. Now, we in our cooperative, we work that covenant every uh, every year, we talk about each of those seven areas. So my wife and I, every dollar of surplus capital that we have, both as a household and as a cooperative, is um, held either in a community bank as opposed to a corporate bank or a credit union or a financial uh, a, a development, community development financial institution, such as Oiko Credit. Uh, so we and, and that was a process where we, we we had to look at where our money was and how to um, really make it work in, in terms of social mm-hmm. investment. We um, we limit our income. Elaine and I uh, both make the same amount of money that we made 30 years ago uh, because that's how much we need to live on. We um, we are trying to grow our own food and learning the disciplines of um, growing some of our own food and becoming at least. Um, basically literate in that sort of thing. Um, And quite frankly, Mike, the biggest struggle for us is limits, finding limits on our work. Sabbath. We we began there and that's where we end. It is a real struggle, particularly when you're doing good work, uh, to limit oneself. And and so we still continue to struggle with that. 
Thank you, Chad, for all you shared with us today. It's remarkable that the standard of economic justice is so thoroughly woven throughout the Bible, yet we tend to hear so little about it. For many of us, you have opened up some of those well-known stories in an entirely new way. Folks, against the backdrop of our culture today, the notion of participating in God's economy, a Sabbath economy, seems impossible. But today, we've heard some examples of people not only trying to imagine it, but actually trying to live it that way. So what's the next step that each of us can take toward active participation in God's economy? Now that we have begun to see the connection between money and faith, what do we do about it? Of course, there's no one place to start. Some of us are just launching out on this adventure, and others of us have been walking the road for decades. Each of us has a different life situation. There's no perfect path that will lead us from where we are to our vision of God's economy. So the challenges we're offering today are just suggestions, specific ideas to prompt and support your personal next step. The first idea is especially for those of you who are just beginning to make the connection between money and faith. For at least one day, keep a tally of how many of your life's activities are fundamentally economic choices. Put a piece of paper or a 3 by 5 note card in your pocket and use it to literally keep account during that day. Think beyond yourself to your family, your workplace, or your town. You can even think globally. Where do you see the economic choices happening that affect you, your quality of life, and your community? When we become aware of how pervasive the money themes are in our lives, we can be especially grateful that we have the Bible's guidance and wisdom to help us through this economic maze. We can also understand why it's so crucial to connect our money and our faith. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is a bit tougher because it calls for a temporary change of habit. Remember how we talked about the manna stories, instruction to take only what we need for the day? In our media-driven world, we are bombarded with messages that we never have enough, making it easy to lose sight of what we actually need for today. So the second challenge is to observe a buy-nothing day. Think you can do it? Of course, we spend money every day in the form of our monthly bills, and I'm not recommending you don't pay them. I'm suggesting you take one day off from other purchases. Buy nothing, not one thing. And if you start to buy something, remind yourself, I already have enough for today. The hope is not to save you some money, though it will. The hope is that for this one day, you may enjoy the sense that you don't really need to buy anything else because you already have enough for today. The third action step is to support a local business when you make one of your purchases this week. Chad talked about the alienation we experience in today's economy, in part because we don't know the people we do business with. So this week, when you need to make a purchase, buy from a locally owned business. And more than that, take 10 extra minutes to talk to the business owner. Most small businesses love to talk about their, their work and how they got started and what their vision is. It's a small but important step in curing the alienation and building a healthier, more faithful economy. I both invite and challenge you to try one of these action steps this week. If you're willing to share how it goes, I'd love to hear from you. My email is mike at faithandmoneynetwork.org. Thank you for joining us today as we have recovered the biblical foundations for connecting our faith and our money. Thank you for spending this time with us. You have now become part of the Faith and Money Network joining together to live into God's economy of enough for all, of solidarity, and of action grounded in love. Blessings on the journey.
Thank you for joining us this week on Faith and Money, Making the Connection. Please tune in again next Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, for another edition with your host, Mike Little, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Take a step this week to let your faith shape your money choices. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.